Hello and welcome to a new episode of Chatting with Charlie. I just recorded all of the intro and also started the topic and then I managed to delete the entire file. Well, not the file, but just, you know, what I'd just spoken. Well done, Livy. So today is going to be a bit of a different episode. I thought I'd um, try and make a topic that's quite complicated, but very interesting. I thought I'd try and break it down and make it easier. And the reason I'm doing this is because it's a uni project of mine at the moment. I'm supposed to give a presentation and that stupid saying, if you can't do teach, is what I'm using now. I had some trouble understanding it. So I thought what I'd do is try and make it as simple and potentially interesting as possible and then I thought hmm why don't I turn it into a podcast episode because the more you spend time thinking about something the more interesting it gets and when I first read a paper about it I thought oh I don't like this topic why was I too slow when I signed up why didn't I get a good topic but it's good to push ourselves outside of what we know and that's why I thought I would share some of the stuff that I'd learned with you lots because yeah it's actually really fun so what are we talking about um before I go into that maybe I need to go back um I hate the saying if you can't do teach it's just a stupid saying and I'm not saying in any way that teachers are people who can't do I maybe just need to point this out before I start um but uh, you know for me this was something at the beginning it was really really complicated and then if you can teach something to someone it shows that you've truly understood it um just to clear up any misconceptions here anyway what are we talking about We're talking about brain lateralization, so what the hell does that mean? If you think of a brain, you have the two halves, and they're called hemispheres. And they have a connection in the middle, so we have these two halves, and these two halves are in communication with each other. They have this, these fibres in between them, uh, called the corpus callosum, if you're interested, and these fibres help them communicate. Um, in German, these fibres are called der Balken, which translated means the beam, and I think that gives you quite a good visual picture of how this works. So we have these two um, halves, and now this is what the actual topic these two halves are not created equal. These two halves are actually different. They vary from very, very subtle differences to actually whole areas that we more or less just have on one side of the brain. And that's why there's a very persistent myth that we have left-brained people and right-brained people. And in this myth, um, left-brained people are more sort of for facts and logic and maths and right-brained people are good at creative things, they're artistic, they're musical. And that's where this comes from, because we have slight differences and we have slight differences in activity on both sides of the brain. But this is something that I can tell you right from the start, that we have right and left brain people is a myth. You are always using both parts of your brain, whatever you're doing, but it is not created equal. Okay, so when I say it's not created equal, um, we could also say there are asymmetries. So it's not symmetrical. 
what does this mean? So these asymmetries, they vary from subtle differences in the size or the synaptic connectivity. So the synaptic connectivity is how the nerve cells talk to each other. Um, this can be... Um, yeah, this can vary. So we can have very subtle differences. We can just have slight differences in size or slight differences in connectivity, or we can have actual nuclei. So we can have actual sort of regions that only exist on one side. Then these differences are usually already established when the um, whatever animal we're talking about is um, developing, so either in the uterus or in the egg or whatever, and the word for that is ontogeny. Um, exactly. So where does this come from, these differences? Well, we have genetic and environmental factors. So this is again something that you need to think about. So we know our brain has two halves and these two halves are not the same. And we always have a nature and nurture debate, but actually in biology, the answer is usually it's both. So there are genetic influences that um, predestine your brain halves, your hemispheres to be different, but the environment also plays a huge role. And I'm going to give you some examples of this shortly when we've just sort of gone through this introduction. And these differences, they actually influence, so they influence not just the physiology of how the brain, these parts of the brain works, but also their cognition and even animal behavior. So small differences in the brain have all of these massive, um, massive effects. And so we have several cognitive functions, for example, language comprehension, but also speech, which is lateralized in human. So we have, in humans, so we have, um, areas more or less just on, on one side. And I think that's actually pretty cool. Particularly if you think about it, um, that some of these things, so there's a lot we don't know. There's a lot we don't know in science yet. If you think about handedness, for example, we wonder is, do we think this is more likely to be genetic or is it more likely to be um, environmental? And then if you think about it, the vast majority of people right-handed so we probably have some some sort of predisposition for this and that's exactly what we're doing in these fields is try and find out okay we have this predisposition but where does it come from what's the point in development in evolution where we find sort of traits that this works that this is what works having this hand being dominant is more likely to be helpful than having the other one being dominant. And talking about dominance, um, that leads me to another really interesting fact. Your brain activity is actually, um, it's contralateral. So it's on the opposite side of, for example, if we're thinking about movements, your right arm is controlled by your left hemisphere. So we always have this, this X. We always have this... Um, yeah, this, um, <laughs> I can't think of a good word, but it's always on the opposite side, which I also just thought was, was pretty interesting. So how do these asymmetries, where do they even come from? Well, there's several places they can come from. On the one hand, we have perinatal environment. What the hell does that mean? Perinatal environment is the exposure to light during a critical period before hatching. So if we're thinking about chicks, for example, or um, 
also pigeons. I'll give you an example in just a minute. Um, this environment actually shapes the way they see and it shapes sort of their entire, um, yeah, their entire development by light exposure before they're born. And again, if you think about this, you know, I thought this was a really boring topic. Who cares about chicks? Who cares about some sort of worms that we'll be talking about afterwards? But actually, the way the light shines on an egg has um, a massive influence, which is pretty cool. So I promised you to tell you about the behavior of some little chickens. Well, if you think of a chick in an egg, then they usually adapt a stereotyped position. So they have um, of their head, so the way their head is within this egg. Um, and usually the left eye is against the yolk and the right eye has access to light. So as a consequence, there's like a discrete window while this egg is being incubated. Um, where the right eye is sort of, I mean, it's not exposed to light, but it can see like differences in light and dark. And this light produces differences. This produces asymmetries in um, the quantity of a specific type of fiber in the brain, which connects several regions. So it connects, um, yeah, two different regions for vision. And we have here now, this light shining has made brain differences. And because of this, um, we have, when a chick hatches, we can see some behavior. So imagine this little chick just um, clucking along, going, um, apart, going about its day. Now, if we think about evolution, um, there are the the things that we need to do is, well, in, in the end, we want to reproduce. But in order to be able to reproduce, we have to eat and preferably not die. So a chick, where does it get its food from? Well, it sort of just um, pecks about in the ground. And they actually prefer to use their right eye. So that was the one that was not against the yolk. They prefer using that eye to discriminate um, seeds or stuff that they can eat from the pebbles, whereas they use their other eye to see predators. And again, this is something that we can hardly imagine in humans because our visual field, we have our eyes at the front. We tend to, um, well, we don't tend to, we see things with both eyes and we, our brain makes one picture and we we become aware of things you know more or less with both eyes i mean you might see it just in the periphery of of one of your eyes but it's not we don't have these you know this distinct discrimination between between both of our eyes and again it's pretty amazing so if there's a predator coming then they're more likely to notice it with their left eye uh, which also has the disadvantage if it comes from the right they might not see it and obviously scientists aren't happy with just just finding this out they want to know okay what happens if we reverse it so if you reverse the way the chick lies in the egg so with the right eye to the yolk and the left eye exposed to light and we do see an exact reversal of this so we see a reversal of these behaviors um so basically, we see the the you know reversal in the brain structure. So we have um, again, it's always the opposite eye. So um, you know the predator would then be seen in the the opposite part of the brain, um, or in the in the opposite 
<laughs> in the opposite hemisphere of where, for example, the predator is being seen. And they also exposed eggs to no light, so they were incubated without light, and they failed to have this lateralization. And these chicks actually did worse in real life. So um, you might think, you know, isn't this a massive disadvantage if you can only, or if you're more likely to see the predator if you're using this one specific eye. But we see if they don't have this lateralization, they do worse. So apparently this is a system that does work. And we see these same sort of features, um, for example, in male fiddler crabs. This is a type of crab, and they have sensory and motor neurons that are involved in their, um, the motor control of their claw. And here again, we have the regions for their dominant claw enlarged in both size and number. So we can see there are like, we have a bigger claw and we actually have bigger neurons. Like the brain cells are just bigger and we have more of them. And I think that's pretty spectacular if you think about it really. And I swear my enthusiasm here is real. When I listened to, or when I heard about this the first time, you know, I wasn't very excited about crabs. But if you think about it, this crab has one bigger bigger claw, and that correlates with bigger brain structures. I think that's pretty impressive. Particularly when we see these same sort of, you know, if you wonder, well, what's the point of having this asymmetry? We see it in all sorts of different animals, including humans. Um, and if this is disrupted, we see problems in behavior. So for example, in the mouse hippocampus, the hippocampus is another part of the brain, um, and it's uh, involved mostly or for example in in memory tasks so the hippocampus is very important for memory maybe if we do a, a quick excursion that i also think is very interesting i'm not sure if you can say that in english in german you say we're going on an excursion if you talk about something that has nothing to do with what you're talking about i feel like this might be <laughs> a language a language thing that doesn't actually exist in english but there's the very famous example of the london cabbies so London is a pretty big city with a hell of a lot of uh, streets and there was a time before Google Maps and these cabbies, I'm not sure if they still have to to be honest, but they used to have to memorise every single street in London. Imagine that, every single street. You know, that's way harder than a lot of things. And they did experiments where they had a look, or I say they, I don't know who did it, but it was, it was done several times, um, that the brains were looked at of the these London cabbies compared to people who were not cab drivers. And we could see, so the spatial memory was, um, we could see an enlarged brain region in these people who, um, who were you know, these cab drivers, which again, it's pretty impressive, isn't it? We know that learning um, <laughs> is good, obviously, but the physically part of the brain was bigger. You can measure this, you can see this just by learning all of the, all of these streets. And I think that's, I don't know, I just, again, I think it's so exciting what is possible with science. But anyway, the same part of the brain was looked at in mice. And um, if this, um, if this uh, asymmetry was, you know, if there, if it was induced that it was, um, I can't think of the English word again, that it was disrupted, there you go, if it was disrupted, then we had, um, 
yeah, we had uh, impaired spatial learning and impaired working memory in these mice. So again, it serves a very distinct point. And with some of these things, we don't know exactly what point it serves. And that's the really, really interesting thing, because there's so much ongoing research happening all of the time. And if I'm honest, I've only just started this degree, and there's so much I don't know, and I mean there's so much we all don't know, but also in some of the lectures there's stuff I think I probably should understand, but honestly I don't. And I think that's why we're here, to learn and to make mistakes, and I think it's alright to admit to mistakes and to just, I don't know, just be allowed to make these mistakes and have a place where we can do it without judgement. And the most important thing, I guess, is this this willingness to learn and this being so interested and burning for a subject. Again, I'm not sure if you can say that in English. Um, yeah, anyway, <laughs> that's just my thoughts. But I just, ah, uh, it's incredible, isn't it, really, all of the things that are possible. I have spared you some of the sort of more technical details, but there are some things from my presentation I still would quite like to cover. So what are the functional consequences of lateralization? So we've said, all right, there seem to be some consequences. It seems to be good, but why? Why is this good? So we have a widespread occurrence, which indicates that we do have a survival advantage. Um, we think it might increase neural capacity, so we think there might just be more capacity, you know, if you can put some things on one side and then you have more space for other things because our brains can't become infinitely large, we can't store, you know, infinite amounts of information or whatever, so you have to make trade-offs. But again, if you've made it like completely independent from each other, then you also have some consequences. So your two brain halves, you know, they can't be completely different and they also have to have to talk to each other because otherwise you have some consequences. And one of these consequences are the so-called um, split brain patients. So split brain patients are what we see if... Um, we have absolutely no connection between the brain halves. So split brain patients um, occur when this, these connecting fibers that I was talking about before, when they are um, usually manually, like with a knife, when they are severed. Now, why would we do that? Some people have treatment-resistant epilepsy, and particularly um, this is something that used to happen, you know, it's not a very modern technique anymore. But if this epilepsy was completely treatment resistant, then sometimes the hemispheres were actually severed from each other. And this made the epilepsy a lot better. And split brain patients, so they can survive without any problem. And um, you probably wouldn't even notice, except for in specific scenarios. And that's something that I would like to talk about now for a minute. So it's important to remember some of the things that I was telling you about before. You need to remember, for example, that the brain... Um, the brain processes this information on the opposite side of, uh, for example, with your with your visual hemisphere, uh, with your, sorry, with your eyes. So if you see something with your right eye, it's processed um, on the left side of your brain. So with these patients, um, for example, if you gave them an object such as a key in the left visual field, then it's registered in the right hemisphere. So if you show someone with this split brain 
a key, they can't tell you what they they can't tell you what they've seen because the right hemisphere cannot produce speech. So speech is produced on the left hemisphere. But the right hemisphere controls the left hand. So with this hand, the patient can draw the key um, or retrieve it from like a selection of objects, even though they're essentially unaware that they've seen a key. And we see sort of several, I don't want to call them peculiarities because, um, yeah, you know, but we sort of see several, several things like like this um, that happen in these split brain patients. But apart from like slight communication issues between the hemispheres, these people can live normal lives and um, they can, um, yeah, they can communicate normally. And this is something that's really, really important because even though the two brain halves now essentially work independently from each other, these people don't adopt um, like split personalities or anything. And the brain can, so the brain can actually construct a narrative that makes sense with respect to both the internal self and the outside world. Um, so we see integration, we see the brain still working, even though we've um, severed the part that can make communication. And we see in other um, conditions, we can see that it matters um, how the brain halves communicate with each other. So, for example, in autism, we've, well, I say we as if I was part of this, but scientists have found um, that in autism we have a lack of these fibres. There are much less than in neurotypical people, thus again showing that there are like proper differences um, in, in the brain between neurodiverse and neurotypical people because again some people sort of want to say oh just grow out of it and you're just pretending and all of this stuff um so again if we can see these brain differences I just think that's something that's that's quite interesting and something that we need to talk about you know uh, particularly in regards to uh, maybe autistic adults obviously autism is a spectrum and we see all sorts of all sorts of presentations but there are many people who get told, oh, you don't seem autistic. And here we can see, you know, these, these differences in the brain. Again, the way everything varies from person to person, they also vary within autistic people. And, um, but some people who were told, oh, you can't be autistic, when they then show autistic traits, they often get, um, well, they often suffer repercussions because people, you know, see it as just you need to change your behavior or whatever and again I think here this discourse can just become needs to change and we need to um, think about these these differences but that's not the topic of this podcast episode what I was actually talking about was the consequences of um, of lateralization so why we have it so we have the same advantages as like other form, forms of neuro, um, neural compartmentalization. So if we make these, these compartments, they just allow sort of more efficient processing. And when things happen more efficiently, you know, the brain uses the majority of our energy, so um, we can save energy, which is very important, um, particularly if you don't live in a world where, you know, like humans do, is always available. Um, you know, if you think of people, um, if you think of, like, not modern humans now, but maybe our ancestors who had to hunt for food, 
um, then it's very, very different. So being able to save energy um, is important. And obviously efficiency is rather helpful. And also, so we actually know that it improves our neural performance. So um, there have been experiments done and we know that from the analysis of various sensory and motor um, and also other sort of more complex circuits, we know that chicks, again, we're back with our chickens. Um, so this is another example just, but we know that chicks who are lateralized, um, they were done, so they were tested on a dual task uh, where they had to distinguish grain from a background of pebbles, but also they had to be um, vigilant for a model predator, and they performed better than the non-lateralized chicks did. Um, but they did the same if the predator was removed. So it didn't matter for just finding food, but for doing two tasks at once, finding food and having a predator, um, it was an advantage to be lateralized. So we know all of these things. And um, one important thing that we also know is that there are still very many questions open that could be answered. So maybe I've made you a little bit more interested in <laughs> brain lateralization. I know that I've made myself more interested. And maybe I've taught you the valuable lesson of this is super boring and why would anyone want to study that? Then that is also a lesson. I thought we'd briefly summarize um, everything that we went over just because um, I've sort of gone into teaching mode, haven't I? So in summary, we know that asymmetries can vary from very, very subtle differences to actually the size and the um, synaptic connectivity. Um, we know that these changes are usually established already during um, development. We know they're the consequences of genetic and environmental factors and that they influence um, the animal's behavior. We know that in many cases, lateralized animals actually do better than non-lateralized ones. And we also know that these uh, lateralizations um, exist in, yeah, in, in many different animals and have developed in many different systems and that they seem to be, yeah, they seem to be beneficial. They seem to be pretty good. Well, thank you very much for listening to this episode and I hope you enjoyed it.